Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Matt Pierce. Hi, Matt. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank uh, you for coming on. And as the custom goes, we'll dive straight um, into it. And would you please share with us an idea that has helped you live well? Sure. Well, as you can probably guess, I've spent most of my life playing the cello. And that, of course, is a wonderful thing to do in terms of keeping your, your sense of how the world is a good place. But uh, one of the things it's done for me is given me unusual insights into how people make decisions. You know, you see all those crazy actions, including writing terrible things on the internet. And, and what is what, what is the decision-making process behind it? And what I look at, from partly from my musical training and also from the stuff that I read over my shoulder, is... Uh, the ways in which decision-making doesn't vary from person to person that gives you the tools to build an optimistic framework of what other people's process is like so you don't have to write them off, basically, so you can work together. And that has been an impressively useful thing, and I'm working out ways to share it with other people. So here we are. We thought we'd have a conversation. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's amazing. And we've had the conversation before, and I know that there is a lot to unpack here. Um, let, let's start at the beginning, uh, the kind of motivations and circumstances that led you to exploring this space at all. Um, if you want to take us back in time and see, because I imagine it came to your mind because there were problems to solve for. Um, yes. So what, what were these and like how far back can you go and recognize the, the beginnings of this interest? Well, I... I have been playing the cello now for, you know, over three decades. And uh, <clears throat> so it's been the, the sort of thing that I, I use as a kind of a metaphor for walking through. I mean, you know, the thing is a, a very precise set of physical patterns that you have to work out for yourself because no one can reach into your body and show you how to use it. You know, you have to work it all out yourself over time. And then you work together with other people and make things happen like orchestra concerts or rock concerts or whatever it is you happen to be playing. Uh, so I've always had this sort of a collaboration type of a mindset. You do the work one way or another on your own, and then you fit with other people. But occasionally events crop up in the world that uh, really challenge your perception of how it is people can work together to solve problems. And I would have to say for me, that was uh, has got to be 9-11. Back in 2001, when all of that unfolded, uh, it became rather instantly clear that uh, simple theorizing and hoping wasn't going to be enough mm. by itself to find ways of building bridges such that those kinds of decisions don't unfold in those kinds of ways. And, and that was really the corner that turned it for me. Um, the tools that I have brought to that... Uh, are not just the physical tools of learning to play the cello. And, you know, 
for example, uh, everyone knows Bach, right? And he's been around for a long time now. He wrote this stuff almost 300 years ago, but everyone knows. These kinds of music. And you can see there's a lot of precision going on. Uh, what you don't see is just how many events per second are happening. And that's what I would teach you if it was a cello lesson. But point being, I have this sophisticated bag of techniques that are layered up together. But that's not the only angle I've brought to it. I've also studied uh, informally, but deeply, uh, things like chaos mathematics and other nonlinear forms of order, complexity theory, dug fairly deeply into emotion theory at one point, and just looking for ways in which people frame all those parts of decision-making that don't run through the rational centers so that you can look at that and say, all right, well, what about this is real? What about this is transferable? And how can I use it to find a way of making sense out of the world that doesn't drive one to despair or uselessness, right? So that's that's kind of the background. Yeah, well, I, I love the fact that, you know, it's not just strictly about playing the cello or doing anything or achieving any goals, but just that it's natural for you to relate to that, to, um, to flourishing and to creating something good and to um, immediately bettering our lives. So it's, it's really interesting. And I'd like to, um, yeah, to basically get an idea of um, what are some of the uh, basic premises that you used in, in kind of coming up with this theory. What, what are some of the first impressions that you have of things that caught your attention, made you um, examine them and incorporate them into a, a method? The, the origins of this whole uh, thing I've been on, and by, by the way, I do need to mention this. If you look over my shoulder, the, the picture here is of Pablo Picasso's uh, Don Quixote. And uh, Strauss wrote Don Quixote as a cellist. <laughs> so there's a connection there of tilting at windmills and impossible tasks. And, mm -hmm. and, and he's, he's <laughs> there in, in more than one way in the room. But, but anyway... Uh, so all of this sort of comes from the background, which is a very interesting problem of teaching the cello to children, right? You think about it, and it's all of these different complexities, but it's also physiological capability. And if you pick up, say, an eight-year-old who's never touched a cello before and you want to teach them how to touch the cello, you do not have a common frame of reference, even in the language, much less in the experience. So already your situation is that you're saying, okay, how are we gonna to talk to each other about this? And so what you're looking for from the beginning is practical, actionable tricks that will get you to where you want to go without bogging down in too much, you know, sort of hyper-rationalist discourse, which is fun, but not practical with an eight-year-old, you know? So for example, I might say, all right, there are three problems in cello playing. And one of them is you've got to push down the notes with the left side of your body. And the second one is you've got to make them sound good with the right side of your body. And the third one is you have to figure out how to get from one note to the next without getting too much tension in the way. Hmm. So, you know, that description you can give very, very precisely 
And it's a high level kind of elevator speech kind of a thing. And then you can layer down into as much as you want. Uh, if, if I'm teaching, my job is to build, assess where you are relative where the teletechnique is, and then build you a personal analogical bridge to help you get from there to here and, uh, and not complicate it too much. So that, that's kind of how all this went. But it also applies then as you get into your career to the problem of studying your own technique, because you know, everyone knows about habits, right? Habits are stuff you can do without thinking about them. You, know, you can run up a flight of stairs while thinking about what you're going to have for lunch and not crash, right? Uh, and what most people don't think about it with habits is that they work so well that you can't see how well they work. Right. For example, if you tried to run up the same flight of stairs you've run up a thousand times while precisely controlling every muscle movement in your body in real time, you would crash, right? So, so there's this whole problem as a cellist, which applies to, to reverse engineering your own decision-making, is that a lot of the stuff you're doing is being done by habit, which means you can't see it, mm -hmm. right? So how do you probe into that? And that's what ended up uh, having me read a book on artificial intelligence. <laughs> So, you know, okay, what are habits and how do they work? And, and that was basically the event that flipped the switch for me. And I think this was in 2004 or 2005. And it's, it's a while ago, so I've had a lot of time to think about it and run down a number of the angles. Uh, but basically the idea is that, um, and, and well, let me, let me get into it this way too. The idea is the habits have a certain architecture and purpose and the characteristic architecture doesn't change, but what you do within the architecture can be changed over time. That's the process of building new habits, right? And if you figure out how the architecture of habit forming interacts with decision-making, it becomes a very powerful tool, right? So, so that's what we're after here. So let's say, um, oh, you want to jump in here. No, I'm saying, yeah, no, no, please uh, okay, go on okay. if you have something more. Yeah. So, so the idea in connects, as I was uh, about to run off on the tangent here, it actually connects quite profoundly to our information age that at this point, there is so much information available at your fingertips uh, and so fragmented, right. In terms of talking to other people, that everyone out there who's looked into anything has extremely detailed maps that make deep sense of the world that don't map well to other people's maps. Mm. And it, it becomes very difficult to argue in a rational sense about how everything works because your evidence and my evidence are often in completely different worlds. And if you're not working from the same standard body of evidence, it's almost impossible to convince anybody of anything with an argument. You, you might shout them down, you might chase them away, right? But that generally doesn't help in a connected world, right? It makes things worse. So how do you achieve something where you can work together? And again, this is the same as the linguistic problem with the, with the cello students. You know, you, you say, mm -hmm. okay, I want you to do this. And they try it and maybe they can't even do it because they're neuromuscular physiology hasn't developed to the point where they can do it. So then you have to build them a ramp to get there. Um, for example, with the bow technique, what you're basically doing is you need to pour energy into the instrument, right? 
But most cello students have the problem where their teacher says, I want you to lift your arms into playing position and then push down on the cello, right? So that's a problem. How do you do that? And it turns out you just need to map the, the thing correctly. So for example, uh, the way I would describe it is you're going to hang onto your bow by putting your first finger in a certain place on the bow and the rest of the fingers are simply going to take care of that place. So what I'm doing is I'm translating an intent and a basic functional point through the nonverbal language of the body in a way that the body can understand without the mind getting overly in the way. Because if I say, and then put this finger here, and put this finger there, and make sure this finger overlaps that one by just this much, uh, that's not going to work for an eight-year-old, right? So the whole idea is you've got this problem of explaining an architecture to an unfamiliar mind without a common frame of reference that except the body itself. And, and so this is sort of the problem. This is what decision-making is really like. Everyone has all of these nonverbal components as well as their own experiences and their own information flows and all of this. And what you need to pick out of all of that is a framework of decision-making that lets you not write other people off. And it lets mm. you co-opt their opposition into something that is a shared framework of problem solving. Wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely like to, um, to go into more detail in that, but first I have to mention, um, Nick Winkleman, who's been on this podcast and I would just absolutely love for you guys to connect. Uh, Nick is a cool. rugby coach and he specializes in strength and, and, um, speed, uh, training. Um, and he talks about internal cues and external cues. And the internal cues are what many, many coaches or, or teachers are focusing on, which is kind of like telling their student, you know, straighten your body or, um, yeah, flex, flex your uh, whatever, whatever um, joint or something like that. And it tends to be not um, not effective at all because then people are kind of focused on themselves and then Nick says that there should be um, external cues given where it's either um, describing the movement as it relates to some other body, let's say the cello or something outside of you, and very often also speak with metaphors. And metaphors are, are very interesting because how fascinating is it that actually saying something that is like the thing we would like to say so not the thing that we want to say actually conveys our meaning better, right? Because you and I might be talking about being angry and, uh, and you know, I could say angry and to me the metaphor is something to do with fire and to you it might be something to do with, um, I don't know, some sort of uh, spring that's, that, that holds a lot of energy. And there's, there's an... Uh, a misunderstanding there of the terms only if I reveal then that to me the metaphor is that talking about fire that Im that is going to immensely help us understand what we're talking about and understand each other even though we gave up on the explicit word right we went into this poetic um, realm and that is very interesting to me in, in terms of that and I think what you just showed with the finger there 
saying that the body is going to take care of itself. Like that, that's part of that because it's, it's exactly not focusing um, on the, on, just as you say, it's not going on and on about, about the exact uh, position of things, but rather already creating a flow, sending someone out there with the confidence that whatever they want the outcome to be, it's going to come along naturally and not, not because you've been forceful about it. Um, yeah, is that is that anywhere in the same um, kind of ballpark? I, I think so. Uh, let me see if I can frame one of the more useful aspects of this right now, because, uh, you know, everyone has the need to do fairly complicated physiological things in their life. And some of them, they just sort of arrive at from the bottom up, or it eventually gelled into something that worked. But sometimes someone asks you to learn it from the top down. And these tricks would also work for purely abstract concepts, but I'm going to express them in terms of the mind-body relation, so they work. And this is something I work with uh, for all my students, but especially the ones who are annoyed that they can't just do exactly what they want right now, and then they get frustrated and want to quit. Right? Mm. So, so the problem is your mind is an abstract realm and it's very easily able to take things and organize them into analogies or symbols or ideas and fit them together and instantly assess a range of broad implications. Oh, so this will apply everywhere. Okay, so we we, we see this relationship, so let's just do it all the time and it'll be fine, right? Mm -hmm. But your body learns like a three-year-old. And it's very slow and it's very concrete and direct and it learns by making mistakes. Yes. And the problem particular to cello playing and many other complex endeavors is that you've got to do about 10 things right at the same time, or it will sound like trash. And if you've got eight of them, right, perfect. And two of them wrong, it can still sound like trash. So, so a lot of my job is to encourage, all the good things that other people can't see what they're doing. So for example, let's say I wanted you to do this. And I said, what you want to do is line up all four fingers on one string, same string, doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter where, just all on one string, and then push it down and basically make a cello sandwich between your rib cage and your fingers with the cello mm -hmm. in the middle, right? If you tell that to someone who's never held a cello, it will typically take between five and 15 seconds for them to get all four fingertips on one string. Hmm. The body takes time to figure this out. And then eventually you can move them like lightning and, and make them work. But that's also a strength and conditioning problem. To get that far, you have to have the mind not give up in disgust. So, so the way this works, right, is that you've got this lovely conscious processing, which is where we do all of our rational arguing and fitting things together to make sense out of the world around us. But the body has got this wonderful, huge network of sort of nonverbal processors. And, and I'll explain it this way. And, and you can do this if you like, or if it doesn't fit on the camera, that's fine. If you hold out your arm, say it don't really fit on the camera either, and, and send it straight out so that the hand 
and elbow and everything's kind of in a line and the thumb is kind of dangling loose, right? It's not really locked, it's just there. And ideally, I would say stick it out to the side like this and then hold it out there, right? There's no room. Yeah. And don't look at it, right? And then you can feel very clearly that your shoulder is telling you where your elbow is and your elbow is telling you right where your wrist is and the double joint of your wrist, it's a double hinge, is telling you exactly where all the finger bones in the hand are, right? And on down all the way to the fingertips, plus your torso is telling you where your arm is and where your shoulder has gone to. And if you process all of that information intellectually, it's overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. And now suddenly mm -hmm. you have a hyper-awareness of your entire arm and it's probably tingling, right? And what the tingling is actually is increased blood flow through the area, which you are actually feeling as a heat flow and a tingle. Uh, yeah. But the idea is all of this knowledge is happening all over your body at all times in a massive load of sensory networking. Basically, the, the point of it is that joints aren't just bendy places. They are sensors in a network. Right. Because it's proprioception, right? Yeah, right. So you can feel by the shape of your arm without even looking at it about what it is doing because of the ways of deformation of the soft tissues and all these kinds of things are going on. And your job when you're trying to learn a complex physiological activity, such as playing the cello, is to hold an image in your head. And by image, I mean it in the neurological sense of, of it could be a sound, it could be a picture, it can be an idea, right? It, just any kind of a coherent image. Have an image of the kind of result you want, clarify it, hold it in your head, and then ask your body to go find it. Yeah, yeah. And the first time it will take five to 15 seconds and probably be hilariously wrong. And if mm -hmm. it's wrong, don't say no, bad body, right? You say, okay, that was close. <laughs> Here's what I wanted, go try it again. And the idea is you have to feed the conscious abstract image into the nonverbal distributed physiological network in such a way that the network can go looking for what you want and find it. And once it finds it, it'll never forget. That's, so, that's amazing. Right? So, so now let's say you wanna do something simple. Like for example, uh, since I'm holding a cello, I'll do this. Let's say I want to do this. Well, I'm going to say, okay, there it is. There's your target. Now, go find it again. Now that missed by a little bit. I, I was going. I was going to share a moment from my childhood, which I remember ah, very. Uh, yeah, not like a specific moment, but just the moment you realize as a child that you can close your eyes and still bring food to your mouth, and it's like. I think yes. naively we just think that you need to look at your at your hand and see it coming and it's like this is how we do it. And the moment you realize we don't have to do that and actually you can bring food to your mouth without looking. I remember thinking it was like, wow, that this is quite neat. It's like really yeah. cool. I didn't I didn't expect it, right? It's almost like an ability yeah. we we're not uh, we're not aware of. Yeah, and so there's, there's this whole world that does this, right? And it's capable of immense precision because, it, you know, 
So I'll come back to what I was about to say about how you layer things up, but let's get mm -hmm. into the precision first. So let's say you want to do something precisely. Well, you hold an image, you try it out. If it doesn't work, try it several more times. If it still doesn't work, simplify it. Take a, a sub-piece of the problem and try to do that instead. We'll get to the layering in a minute. But the level of precision is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, when you're playing something like a cello, the, the whole instrument is somewhat flexible, right? I can push the strings down, but I can also actually bend parts of the instrument if I play on it with enough force. Meanwhile, if I push it into my chest, my whole chest sinks in, right? So everything's mm -hmm. this sort of a, a tensegrity kind of a, a thing where it's a, all the parts aren't rigidly confined, like say a, somebody builds a milling machine and, and engineers a bunch of parts with it. It's not like that. It's more organic than that. Everything is flexing, but you can still get these thousandth of an inch kind of precision levels, you know, quarter millimeter stuff. Uh, for example, you can hear a difference between those two notes. It's my job to hit it right the first time in the middle of a complicated piece of music, right? So, so the way you get there if you play that through the abstract mind, right, is you use sort of general statistical models. I will say, here's my equation. There are my two points of flexibility. Everything else is locked down so I can calculate it, right? We'll try that while running up the stairs and see how far it gets you. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So instead, what you have to do is picture a result, an image of a result, and then turn the distributed network of the entire body loose on finding it. And let all of those sensors we talked about talk to each other and coordinate. And the way you do that is by involving as many of your own joints in the process as you possibly can. Right? Because otherwise you're limiting information that will make you more precise. So for example, I, I'm going to see if I can demonstrate this. Most people slouch. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you do a slouch, if this is your ribs and this is your hips, it looks kind of like this. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if I arch my back, it looks like this. Mm -hmm. And that's also very rigid. I've, again, locked out a bunch of joints. In order to play well, I need to activate as many joints as I can. And that looks like this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll back on my hips like this. Here's forward locked, and I can roll a long way back. But I'm going to roll back, and then I'm going to lift the lower ribs from the lower back like this. And I'm going to have a high front of the rib cage on top of a rolled back pelvis. What that will do is lengthen the back of my neck and involve all of the bones in my spine in an active balance rather than in a locked posture. And that's a prerequisite. And the way I describe that to students is make your body like a cathedral from the collarbones down. Tall, dark. Yes, exactly, right? Com mm -hmm. Tall, dark, a little mysterious, spacious, and then float the head above it. And now you've given your body permission to find all the things that need to move to get the result you're looking for. Right. Yeah. So, so this is in, if you take that back to the problem of solving complex abstract problems, right? Mm -hmm. 
Now you're stuck with the issue, have you defined the problem correctly in the first place? Because the world is filled with a bunch of things that people have framed in unwinnable terms and it makes them miserable, right? Right. Uh, so, and, and one of the hallmarks of a high information society is that you don't really have the option anymore of shutting out the people who disagree with you because technology is evolving so fast they can find ways in faster than you can shut them out. Yes. So you've, you've got to, again, take the control off, loosen the constraints, and find out what is the true size of the problem, let all the joints play in a way that, that makes sense out of it. And the way I have found to do that is ultimately the tool that I'm building to help me, uh, you know, make sense of decision making in a broad sense in a sort of a easily transmittable metaphorical heuristic sense, right? And I call it the law of radical consensus. Uh, so this this is where we we have a new tool to play games, and the reason we need the tool is that um, again rationality is limited, right? If I come to you with an argument, here's my argument, and the argument has three parts. Here's my evidence. Here's my reasoning. Here are my, my conclusions. Right. Well, if you accept my argument, then the, if you accept my evidence and my reasoning, then you're stuck with my conclusions. Right. Right. But it's, that it's never works. You've just passed me down a dogma that I can uh, recite, but probably not really uh, break down into components and uh, truly have knowledge of what it means. Yeah. So, so the, the issue is that everyone's got different evidence and different standards of evidence. You know, how, I mean, how do we all agree on which evidence to admit? Well, no one wants to be left out, so that's a bit of a problem. Um, and that is the, the, the limit on rational argument in terms of its persuasive ability in the modern age. There's too much information too fast to sift through, and that's true for everyone, not just like a little corner of people. Uh, so what you have to do before you're going to persuade someone with a rational argument is you've got to get on the same page first and then use the argument to extend your awareness of the common ground that was always there to begin with. And the tool for that is the law of radical consensus. And all the law of radical consensus says is that um, any disagreement, literally any disagreement, all possible disagreements, can be reframed as a form of consensus simply by jointly acknowledging that the dispute exists. Oh, we disagree, mm -hmm. right? Okay, instantly yep. we're on the same page. And the limit case is you and I agree that we can't even tell whether or not we disagree, right? We, we, can, we can play this as chess and, and I, can, I can win the board playing that game because I can always find the agreement. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you take someone who you're trying to solve something with and you get on the same page with them by iterating the law of radical consensus until you meet a collision of three things at once. And the three things are consensus, right? Okay. We agree. Well, that one we've just shown is easy to make it really robust. We want two more things. We want universality. This applies everywhere. And the third one is self-evident. We can all test it. We don't need, you know, a $40 million lab to, to test it. We can look at it. And if you do that and you go back far enough, what you've created is a stable set of premises from which to reason jointly 
with a new ally instead of an opponent. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, that's right up my alley doing um, dialectic. By the right. time uh, by the time this episode comes out, uh, the episode about dialectic will have been released. Um, it's 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 really fascinating, and uh, just as you were describing the um, uh, talking about posture and the joints working together, I started thinking about the work of the dialectician. So first of all, it's yes, it should be a, a, a shared search for the truth. And so um, we want to be on the same team, first of all. And that's very important. And that's aided by the, um, by the willingness to agree on things, right? And not just be a contrarian all the time, which is also kind of a, a plague brought on maybe by the ego or whatever it is. But people like to be right and not necessarily... Um, agree with other people and and to even be there you need to be flexible right otherwise you're very you're very uptight like thinking that you know something and not entertaining the possibility that your conception could be improved on it doesn't even have to be terribly off or like awfully constructed but if you think you know that's that's already kind of rigid you know, and I think that's the idea behind um, the misattributed quote of like, the only thing I know is that I don't know that. Not, that's not really in the platonic corpus, but whatever. Um, but the idea is, is there and the adage is famous because there's something true about it because you keep yourself nimble rather than, rather than completely um, uptight. And I think it's it's our job as people talking with one another to be to be playing and to be gently um, gently putting our fingers on the other uh, quote unquote body part that we feel for the other person could be a little um, clenched or rigid or anything like that and make the other person pay attention to that. And I think that is done by asking questions um, and keeping the whole framing as, as a playful thing, right? Not as an interrogation. So in, mm -hmm. in, in platonic dialogues, a lot of the time, like people hate Socrates because they feel that they are under attack and they're under investigation or interrogation, right? Yeah. But actually, you can do that playfully. And, and this is really funny. And um, these kind of moments of just like, hey, let's take a look at this recent argument of yours. You say that, um, you know, this is that. I was like, well, if this is that, what does it say about um, the relationship between that and the other thing, right? Um, and I really like the, um, the metaphor then of being able to, to move and not being rigid because this is what we want our thought to be, right? We want not to be just in our body. That's certainly true. I'm just now uh, realizing that my knee hurts very easily if I hike just a little bit or play a game of volleyball. Yeah. And I realized now today I started paying attention because I want to solve for that problem. I'm paying attention, finding that my way of standing just at the workstation on the computer or something, and I'm locking yeah. my knee, exactly what you said. I'm locking and putting a lot of, a lot of weight on my knee. 
And I mm-hmm. guess that's okay to lock your knees like that's how horses sleep. But there's probably another something over there where the weight doesn't yeah. really sit where it should sit. And it's causing me pain. So now that I have a, a problem to solve, I'm paying attention. And every time I catch myself doing that, I'm actively changing the way I, I hold my own um, weight. So I, I really like the whole uh, metaphor yeah. and the transference that could be made there between uh, body and mind and the focus on really launching a sequence without being overly aware of the snapshots, right? And rather focusing on a result, um, which interestingly, it really makes us relate the, the, the moment to a moment in the future. So it's, it's a much more, um, you, you have to relate things rather than really worry about the, the one thing, which I think is the beginning of, of wisdom. When you realize that you need to think about relations between things and then especially the relation of the good, um, that's uh, that's almost a superpower to be able not to be so um, restricted to think about things by themselves. When you start relating them to other things, you're already halfway um, to kind of having a better thinking about things uh, that's more flowing. And um, anyway, I might have digressed, but I, I really, I really dig that uh, metaphor of. Yeah. Um, let, let, let and me, flexibility. Because uh, I, I, I can see um, three directions that I could go off of what you said. I'll try to hit a couple of them quickly. For example, let me see if I can help you troubleshoot the knee thing, right? So mm-hmm. the, the first thing that, as you've pointed out, it's, it's tired and sore and whatnot, or just feeling off, that generally indicates, okay, could be a bit of a strength and conditioning thing, but even that too would stem from the deeper problem which is something is off with the balance, right? Mm-hmm. So the first trick to diagnosing the balance is to do the cathedral trick with the body. And you start out by sitting this way. You let the hips roll slightly back, you lift the front of the rib cage, and you float the head over the cathedral. And that opens the sensory pathways. So that's step one. Step two is a neat trick about muscle tension because most beginning cellists are tight like rocks up here because they're lifting their arms in a playing position and then it gets very tight. Um, But then somebody says, so loosen your muscles. And they say, I can't, right? Well, Mm -hmm. the reason for that is that muscles come in antagonistic pairs, right? This Mm -hmm. kind of thing, you opposite muscles, one pulls, the other stretches, that kind of thing. And by definition, you're going to feel the tension in the weaker pair of the antagonistic Mm. pair, uh, weaker side. So say if my traps are always hurting, right? Because they're tense, it's because I'm pulling up against something that's stronger. So if I need to solve the tension problem, I need to look on the other side and say, why am I pulling down? And for most people, the ultimate cause is that they're actually using their traps to try and lift their rib cage instead of the muscles in their lower back and they're fighting gravity and they can't win. But if you lift here instead, then then that whole area releases and the shoulders kind of swing out and around the body and your balance becomes effortless. So you look, that's the, the second piece, is you look specifically for the antagonist of where it is tight. 
and mm. sometimes the antagonist is gravity. <laughs> and then the third one for knees in particular is that if you think about the foot as a tripod, there are two legs in the front of the foot and one on the heel, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be trying to stand in such a way that your feet, that your body weight is distributed evenly over all three aspects of the tripod. And so if you do those three, three things together, you expand the body cathedral by lifting the rib cage from the low back and rolling back the hips. And you think about antagonists as a general part of your image as a thing to be solved. And you maneuver your weight so that it's evenly distributed across all six parts of the two foot tripods. Now you've got something you could probably diagnose with a fair degree of accuracy where the issue is. Kind of makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, I'm definitely going to uh, to carry this going forward and, yeah. and try. And you, you, and, can, and... you can see how you can even do it sitting down, right? You say, oh, hey, you know, a, a lot of people yeah. carry a lot of tension very high in the calves because what they tend to do when they're sitting is tip up on the fronts of their feet and take the heel slightly up. And all of that tension in the calf accumulates at the top of the, top of the calf. And uh, yes, it's, it's almost it, like you just saw my, uh, my yeah, posture right? now. <laughs> and it's because we're doing this, right? So, mm -hmm. so the trick is to maybe sit a little closer to the screen or alternatively bring the screen higher so that you're not tipping forward and out of balance and have to push yourself backward with the balls of your feet. And of course, this yeah. is a classic cello playing thing too, right? If you tense, it's gonna, it's gonna lock up the rest of your body and you'll be you're trying to play and you're doing it all right, but your elbows are late and not quite hitting their spots and then it all explodes because you're just tense in your calves, you know? So, yeah. so this, is, this is part of the way we do it. Um, second place I could have gone with that is that, again, if you take back to the idea of teaching beginning lessons to an eight-year-old, well, the first thing an eight-year-old is going to do is be very concerned about meeting a brand new adult they've never known, trying to display a skill that they don't have. They're incredibly self-conscious, right? So you have to set them at ease before you can really engage. And most of the first three lessons is about that. If you're going to enter in what amounts to a dialectic, uh, of achieving a mutual understanding of how to play the cello and that it's really fun, right? You, you have to spend a lot of time just carefully letting that uh, defusing landmines of, of concern, right? And typically it's not till about the third or fourth lesson that, that the kid will really kind of open up and say, hey, this is fun. That's usually the time they say, okay, mom, you can wait outside the lesson now. <laughs> but then of course, for an eight-year-old, right, the thing they're going to do the most in the lesson is have fun. And they'll show you all the ways they've thought of how you could play the cello upside down or, you know, all these different things. And so now you have to keep the spirit of play, but still guide them toward what you want them to be doing, which is what their parents are paying you to do, which is teach them to play an instrument. And so there's this whole toolbox of before you can really get to the serious stuff, again, you've got to get on the same side as the person you're talking with, you know. I, yeah. I have had the experience where I've talked about my, my framework of decision-making and tried to talk about it with someone who's determined to blow up every one of my points before I can make it. It's pointless. Oh, you know. Fun. <laughs> right? There's, there's just no, there's no gain to be made. So, you know, and by the way, the, whole, the way you make the whole model is you reply my law of radical consensus and you iterate it until you get the convergence of consensus, universality, and self-evidence, and you apply that to decision-making. 
and then you turn it on. So uh, law radical consensus to go backward, reason to go forward. If you hit a snag, you just loop back to the nearest consensus and then resume your goal. So that's how you build the model using this sort of specialized cello knowledge and some of the stuff over my shoulder on the bookshelf. But but the idea is still, you've got to be on the same page first. And so uh, what most people do when they're arguing, right, is, is they launch a false frontal attack, a broadside, if you will, straight at the other other guy and then wait and see, okay, now, now you're just going to come to me, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. You, but one of the things you can do if you've played around with this stuff again, in the, partly in a dialectical sense and partly in this sort of decision-making sense is that once you map the non-rational parts of decision-making, it gives you counterattacks, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, one, one of my one of my favorite ones, if, if someone comes at me with anything overly partisan, you know, say the sort of thing that say 20% of whatever group of people is okay with saying out loud, you know, uh, yeah, the other political party is horrible, or stupid or evil, whatever it is. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is just point out that, you know, that's really not compatible with democracy, is it? You know, right, you say, well, if if 50% of the population is stupid or evil, how, uh, what are the implications for democracy? And you just, you, yeah. you flip it around. And instead of basically what I'm doing is instead of attacking or defending the point, I'm attacking the premise and, and making it visible that the premise by itself doesn't stand up in the context in which it is being implicitly framed. Uh, we're defending democracy by destroying 50% of the population, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it doesn't actually work. And But more practically, it doesn't work in a networked society. Because every mm -hmm. time you do that to someone, they just go and get meaner and ask your friends and come back. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you. Um, just personally, like this, uh, this tendency or this wish to see um harmony between people which is basically mm -hmm. like to you it seemed like it was completely natural but i think a lot of people are focused on other ends growing sure. up like is it is it just something that you remember yourself caring about from a young age whether it's like a sense I, of justice or anything like that to some extent i mean <laughs> part of it is when you don't have a visual memory it's awfully hard to see differences between people Okay, nice. Right. I mean, I can remember lots of things about lots of my friends, but what they look like isn't one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Are they tall or short? I, I don't know. You know, it, what's their face look like? I really have no idea. <laughs> I don't recognize yeah. them when I see them because the information is stored. I just can't access it. <laughs> so, That's so interesting. So that, that's part of it. And that's, that's what I mean is in, in, when you have this sort of an outlook, you know, the aphantasia where you just don't have a mental mind's eye, it's, it just is blind. Now my sight is fine. My color recognition is fine. Do lots of things, but I can't look at something in my head. I have to play, you know, dynamically evolving cathedral architectures and navigate by sonar instead. Uh, but it gives you an outlook, which is different. And, and so, when you apply that to things like society and technology and people, 
you realize fairly quickly that technology is going to change unpredictably faster mm -hmm. and faster because that's what it does. But if you can figure out aspects, characteristic aspects of human decision-making in an architectural sense that do not change and do not vary from person to person or over time, then what you've got is a tool that lets you see into the future and figure out how things are going to unfold despite the unpredictability of technology. Because what technology does is it doesn't change the characteristic and variant parts of decision-making. It changes what you can act on. You know, here we are talking to each other across the world. Well, that's wonderful. And who knows what will be possible in another 20 years, right? But there are invariant aspects of decision-making which cannot change. And you discover them by pointing the law of radical consensus at decision-making and turning it on. And that's, that's the game because the, and the reason for playing the game again is that in the long run, technology enables anyone to do anything to anybody. And if we continue down the road of, of leveraging dissatisfaction, that will have bad results. It's guaranteed. And because, you know, another way of putting that is that it's not just that anyone will be able to do anything to anyone. Anyone will be able to do anything to everybody. <laughs> and, and you can't wall that off with technology because it's growing faster. The, the, basically, the attacks are out evolving the defenses. So, so what you need to do is find something else you can grab onto and steer with. And to me, that's the invariant aspects of decision making. Mm -hmm. And I've got the tool to do it. And now it's a matter of, of pairing the tool with rational argument so I can explain it as backed up by stuff I can demonstrate in the mind-body interface that I've been exploring for decades behind the cello. And then again, reducing it to user-friendly tools. And that's what I'm really trying to do at this point. It's just, you know, a heck of a translation problem. Because, you know, this and here again, we'll pull in the idea of not having a mind's eye. What a lot of people can do if they're trying to work out how to explain a complex concept is they can draw you a map, right? They can, they have a fundamentally visual way of looking at things on the inside of their heads. So they can make a sort of a 2D representation of how all the parts fit together and say, look, this goes here, that goes there. This is how it works. In my head, not only do I not have visual signifiers, but it's more like an n-dimensional architectural weave. It's more symphonic in structure. You know, you've got, say, Mahler's Ninth Symphony, you've got maybe 120 players on the stage for an hour or so playing four movements of music. And there's all these harmonic shifts and highly abstract stuff that's happening. And it's great, and it's wonderful, but you can't reduce it into three words. You know? <laughs> so part of the interest for me in talking to people about it because obviously you can tell by the way I talk, I'm very verbally fluent. But what you can't see is that the verbal fluency is not connected to the non-visual centers. Yeah, it's fascinating because before hitting uh, record today, we were actually talking about um, aphantasia and the way in which uh, this differs from the usual experience. And I have something which is akin to aphantasia when it comes to sound. And we kind of compared our um, qualia and it, it was funny to realize how different people can be from one another, right? Um, 
interested in in you know maybe you were drawn to that in the sense that you wanted to communicate with people not lose them but i feel like it's bigger than that and it gives an even bigger gift in um later in life when you actually consciously realize that our relationships with people are just about the most important things to us as a as a social creature so i think it's probably a, a natural continuation of the kind of thought um that you were carrying with you that this kind of harmonizing and i really like the fact that this comes from the world of music but harmonizing among people is something that we should um really work toward and see and i think that the the whole kind of architectural view of things i imagine that you can apply that to society as well yeah i mean and and i'm not quite sure how much of this is a rehash of course but the the idea that that you know well here's something that definitely isn't a rehash have you ever actually tried to define the word music now this this is a really interesting problem actually it's really interesting i mean obviously like to me knowing ancient greek it goes back to like the literal etymology from musica and having a, a something things related to the muses right which are of course yeah. not necessarily uh has to do with sound right because any artist is really um is affected by the muses and of course the um, the iliad opens with a calling to the muse to come and speak of the anger of achilles right so yeah you're right i mean it it doesn't necessarily have to have to do with sound and the idea is kind of mythological behind yeah i don't know how do you yeah. describe music It gets even worse. Let's say if you want to narrow it down and say, all right, music has to do with sound. Okay. But is rap music music? Right. Is orchestra music music? Is, you know, various bits of folk music. Uh, if you go and you look at the patterns that some people will do, uh, there are some societies that do incredibly percussive, complex polyrhythms with rocks on rocks. Is that music? You know, it's a, it's a surprisingly personal boundary and that's quite a lesson i mean in my experience i have played a lot in orchestras because it's what i love to do i think the most chamber music is fun too where you get a smaller group of people like a quartet or a trio playing things and even then most of our repertoire in this field is stuff that's been written 100 200 years ago right but i've also played in new music ensembles where someone just finished writing the part 15 minutes ago and we try to play it is that still music if it gets weird you know is the music of john cage music where it's mm. a bunch of sort of found things put together at the same time and you take what meaning you can find from it it it's a very slippery thing but what it ultimately comes down to in a practical sense is that you need a sort of a shared definition of music for the people in the room You know, if if you come to an orchestra concert and we play some stuff and you're like, "Yes, this is music. This is what I came for." And then we break out something, you say, "Oh, this is horrible. This is just noise. I'm leaving." Mm-hmm. We probably didn't do our job well enough. But if we can bridge it over and we can say, "Oh, well, here's something that might transgress your boundaries just a little bit, but not enough to make you walk out of the hall." You know, 
that'd be all right too. So yeah, it's I, it's this I think... funny definitional space. Yeah, I I would say now that you've made me think about it, and thank you for doing that. I think that we really should focus on what we want to find, and this kind of ties back into really looking at the result you want and seeing how how you get there. Sometimes, kind of not not in a conscious way. Um, and I would say, if I had to re redefine this word i was i would use harmonics which i know is a technical term within music today but harmonics in anything so um in in greek harmonics would be things to 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 do with like fitting things together right which is really what we want to see in any form of art we want to see good proportion we want to see fittingness between the right. different parts and the golden mean this, type stuff Exactly. And, and this just naturally, for whatever reason, just appeals to something very deep in us that takes um, pleasure in it, that kind of titillates us in, in a good way. And um, yeah, so I would, I would define it by what we want to find in it. And that would be yeah. harmonics, because... I think all the stuff that you would call not music, the, the, the just banging rocks or something, that would be the kind of stuff where you personally can't find any harmony, right? Or it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. just doesn't do it for you. Um, right. It's, it's all about personal resonance. And I would submit to you that this is a sort of an evidence of the non-rational aspects of human decision-making, that what mm -hmm. you are talking about these sort of found senses of common ground and belonging and capability are what we're actually all after in terms of defining the non-variant bits of it. That's the scaffolding upon which we can hang the words, you know, but, but if you're looking to find a consensus, that's the way it works. You don't manufacture consensus. You don't even extend consensus. You find it. And then you discover the hidden extent where it was always there. That's what a rational argument really does. If we agree on this thing, like not just mostly agree, like 100% agree on this thing, and we can make a solid case that this line of reasoning is also true, then what that tells us is that we also already, in fact, agreed on this other thing, even mm -hmm. though maybe we didn't know. And so you... You have to be careful trying to just define words to get into these nonverbal sorts of concepts that music reaches into. Um, again, if it, when I talk about spacing the body as a cathedral and lifting the front ribs from the lower back, it, if you do this, you'll notice your breathing will, will in, instantly open by 10%, if not more, depending on how tense you were. Um, but it, it tends to put you in your body a little bit more than just in your headspace. And that's one of the things about decision-making is that really it involves a lot of these sorts of pulls coming from different parts of the body in a sense, which is, again, not really a strictly verbal sense. Um, but the key is you've got to get your accuracy before you get your precision. And accuracy in social aspects is agreement. You, ha you can't set policy if you don't have agreement, you know, because mm -hmm. people will just ignore it or flout it or, or undermine it. And then the, the pendulum will swing again. And technologically, uh, the pendulum is swinging 
harder and faster each time, which is a destructive positive feedback loop. So to dampen it, you have to find the 100% agreement first, and you have to go back far enough to find it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And, and that's the whole point, again, of the law of radical consensus. It is an iterative tool for going back and back and back and expanding the frame to the point where everything converges and the people you're talking to say, yeah, I agree 100% with what you're talking about. Might use different words, but that's okay. We don't care about the words, particularly. We care about the agreement at the core. And it's yes. non-verbal. Yeah. And, and so a... that's what... Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, I'm saying there's an author called Chris Voss, and he was um, a negotiation expert for the FBI. Uh, hmm. And he wrote a book, Never Split the Difference. And it's not because you're supposed to, like, um, be... Uh, he's a negotiator, so it's not about not giving an inch or something, even though, you know, in, in his work, yes, of course, he's going to be trying to manipulate the other person and try to convince them because there's human lives on the line. But mm -hmm. I really like the never split the difference. And it's not because you, you agree to disagree, but because you don't want to make compromises. Compromises, in a sense, are things that both sides are unhappy about. And you need to frame things in a way that really finds a way for both of you to be happy with the with the conclusion you reach and the decision uh, that is made. And I, I really appreciate um, that idea. I also want to ask you, mm -hmm. if we're looking at, at different cultures and speaking about beauty and perception of beauty, this is, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder is this is this great thing although it's it's really not like i we might not agree on what's beautiful but i can promise you that if i chose if i just put the onus on you to define beauty for yourself in the sense that i would be asking you matt you know compare three different pieces of music like what you find beautiful in them eventually we would find out that both for you and for me, beauty is a, is a kind of proportion or fittingness that we find in things. We might not have the same taste, but for both of us, for both of us, it's um, it's proportion that makes things beautiful or not beautiful. How components? Um, what's the interplay there? So I wanted to ask you in terms of culture, and culture can, in fact, of course, of course. Um, influence our tastes, right? Mm -hmm. And this could be a, a very, you know, compare Greek music with, um, yeah, like church music, right? Like pipe organ or something like that. I think it very much is, um, is a reflection of the culture where it was invented, right? So Greek music is like upbeat and it's just natural. It's kind of coming from the place of, hey, we're spending a day at the taverna and we're going right. to dance and, and move around and all that, right? While a pipe organ is like, it's a cold day outside in Northern Europe and we're all here, we're sitting, you know, we're just keeping our warm, not trying to lose calories, um, trying to conserve energy and so on. Um, this is, a, this is a, a very basic thing right like in order to really enjoy pipe organ music it makes sense that our habit physically would be kind of to understand where these people are coming from and mm -hmm. adopt a, a real behavior of like 
being able to sit quietly, right? And not, because don't expect to be dancing all over the place. Um, uh, so how do we do it, that? Uh, well, a lot of it has to do with the purpose of the music too. I mean, is it party music? You know, is it street music? Or is it worship music, for example? And, and say, well, is, what is the pipe organ in this case supposed to represent? Well, is it, is it a party kind of a thing? Or is it like this is, this is somebody trying to put music to the word of God or something, which is often what it was at that time. And, but I, I would take it deeper than that. Um, in the spirit of the, the negotiator you were talking about, that the idea isn't to agree to disagree which is what most people hear when you say these things. The, agree, the idea is to agree that you disagree. Mm -hmm. It's not, oh, let's, let's just continue to do our separate things. No, no, let's agree that we disagree, and we just instantly formed an agreement. Absolutely. And the, then the goal is to come up with a mutually satisfactory solution by using the law of radical consensus to zoom out and reason to move forward and play it back and forth in the frame with however many people are involved in the discussion. And if you want to make it truly robust, you zoom all the way out to the point you've got universals and self-evidence going on. And if and then you go forward. And if you do that with music, that's where it gets really interesting, doesn't it? Because you can say that even though the styles are widely different, wildly different, and again, you see how the mind, the, the categorizing mind leaps straight to the distinctions right? The question that is more interesting to me is what is the same? And the thing that's the same is that all of these musical things are physical vibrations of the air. You know, it's sound and it's mm -hmm. organized sound, organized in some context. And uh, not everyone's organizations make sense to everyone else, not just across cultures, but also across things such as tone deafness right? If you can't hear pitch, you can still dance to a beat. And so it's, it's these functions, right? That you get Almost, into, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, not necessarily well, right. I, I'm a terrible <laughs> dancer. Actually. I, I, I'm very stiff in my upper body, which is why I've worked so hard to understand how to loosen it up. But there's a mm. sort of a spontaneity there that's hard to get to unless you've got it grounded the right way. And one of the things that cello playing does is it stops at the hips right? I mean, mm -hmm. I don't have to be loose in my legs to play well, although I would play better if I were looser, you know. Uh, but yeah, so that's, it's this business of culture is still overlaid onto a physical substrate. And, and the one way I like to talk about this is that um, society is sort of like engineering. But decision making is the physics. Like what, what are the hidden rules that determine what can and cannot be successfully engineered and how? Now, if you don't know the physics, you can mess around with the engineering and try a bunch of stuff and some of it will work and some of it will fail and some of it will work really well for, really well for a while and then spectacularly explode at a certain point, you know, like testing rocket engines. Uh, but you, you do it, you test it and you test it iteratively and you see where you go. But if you can map the physics, you can really improve your testing. And, and so in, yeah. when you do this in music, right, your, your whole point as a musician is to transform the mood of the person who's on the other, send, uh, other end of the music. Like if I'm playing to my audience, I have an idea of what 
response I want to evoke in my audience, and I'm going to engineer my own playing to do that within a certain context. So if I'm playing, you know, street music and asymmetric time signatures from the Mediterranean, which I've done on streets mm -hmm. in Missouri with uh, random guitarists, um, you, you need to take a different approach to the instrument than you would, say, in a concert hall. But your understanding of what to do differently is informed by your own engineering of how to get different sounds from your own instrument, and that's still informed by the physics. So you can always go back to what are the ground rules and then find common ground rules, not just stuff that's true whether you want it to be true or not, which you could arguably make the case, say, about certain religions being true or not true, but since that won't actually get you anywhere in societal stuff, you have to be stuff that we can all agree is true enough. <laughs> and yeah. that gets kind of like the definition of beauty, doesn't it? Because you see, once again, we're grappling with nonverbal frames of continuity and resonance that have common ground at the bottom of them. And it still, it always comes down to if you want to do anything well with other people or in spite of other people, you have to find common ground with them on what the rules are and aren't about what can be done. And there's a process for that, and it leverages the decision-making. But it comes out of this sort of musical way of thinking. Like, for example, if I've got a, a cello student, and they play something, and then I say, that was good. Now, do this. Change the power on your left hand, float the bow them, or whatever it is. And you hear how it's different now? And then I will say this. Now I know... There aren't words that describe the difference, right? You can feel that it's different in your body. There's no way you can tell me with any precision or accuracy what is different, but you can feel that it is different. And then I say, internalize that difference and you'll be able to call it up whenever you want. So yeah. it's, it's that sort of a functionality that matters is that what makes rational argument work as a discovering kind of a, a technique for uncovering knowledge and consensus and whatnot is an existing pre-established consensus that it's a useful tool. And if you can't tap into that idea that, we're, hey, we're on the same page in some fundamental way here, it isn't going to convince anybody. And so often what you see is, is people get so caught up in the idea that, oh, it just because it's familiar, it must be easy, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not mm -hmm. whether something is hard or easy, it's whether it can be made familiar or not. Because if it's familiar, you could do it without thinking. Again, it's like running up the stairs, right? Oh. Right, yeah, know. you're right. That's such a good point. It's it's kind of beyond hard or easy. It's just yeah. um, habitual. It's, it's yeah. not the right dichotomy is the issue. And, and again, mm -hmm. you see this with the mind-body distinction. The mind loves to do narrow statistical analysis, two-variable stuff, lock down everything else, like in a science experiment. The body is running this massive network of linked sensors that are talking to each other in real time. And if you hold your precise image in your mind and ask your body to do it and give it time for the network to iterate, it'll solve it. But again, it that's the process by which you take something unfamiliar and make it familiar. You have to use the architecture in the way that it functions, not in the way that you just wish it functions. 
And that's the stuff that you can see into with the decision-making stuff. That's the game of it is just to apply it in those sorts of ways. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, I also had a thought about, you know, the, the cultural differences that it's really a, a dialogue between um, the culture and the, and the music that is played in it because I, I kind of thought about, well, in Greece, you know, and I'm, I'm from a warm country, Israel. So in, yeah. in, in, in these countries, it's like, well, first, first of all, it's the kind of weather that makes you move. Yes. I think even though you'd like to sit in the shade, actually, at some point, you're just like out of your mind in a sense. You just have to move. And, yeah. and there's too much energy. For, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's, it's only natural for people to be celebrating at night when, when it's actually nice again. Now they have to kind of, I don't know, um, go crazy. Whereas in, in cold places, of course, people move less. And I think the music reflects that. And then at some mm -hmm. point, it's learned that, you know, you, you just need the first note from that music to put people in the mood, which they're already predisposed to kind of be in. Right? So it's a kind of uh, a chicken and the the egg thing and yeah. again you go back to actually appreciating maybe you're from a cold country and you don't really appreciate the, the noisiness of greek or or um like middle eastern music but maybe the way to uh, lead you there to find um resonance rather than dissonance with that thing is to give you a, a good cultural context of of where this music is from because it's not mm -hmm. separate from the environment from the weather um and so on yeah i i'd like us to um to kind of um row row towards the the finish line here but really wondering sure. if um if you still have a, a thought that needs to um complete complete the theme or wrap things up um or anything like that i think the way i would i would close it for now is to say that again that if you take all of this stuff together you know very different personal and cultural modes of expression and perception and all that and mind and body and technology accelerating while human nature stays the same and all these kinds of things. Um, what it ultimately comes down to is you've got to find a way to work with other people. One, number two, in a way that makes you not despair about human beings. You know, mm -hmm. everyone is universally horrible is not a recipe for a good uh, society, <laughs> right? Because now there's no or, constraints or, on or, anyone. Or, or well-being within yourself, right? you know, being a misanthrope yeah. is, no, is no fun. Yeah. Right? So, so you, you, you have to find universals that avoid despair. And then you've got to find stuff that lets you actually build useful things together in a way that ideally is sort of virally contagious. So there's a number of constraints on the problem. And I think, and I believe I can make that case, that the way you do that in the face of exponential technology, where you, people's actions are less and less limited, right, is that you, you map out the deep familiarity and the common ground, the human common ground, in the way in which human decision making does not vary from person to person. And once you have a sense of that, that again is, is not just avoiding despair, but actually a positive way of looking at other people, then it becomes really easy to interface with all the different cultural stuff. And if you don't have that, everything looks like an existential threat. 
<laughs> yeah. So that's really, I, to me, that's the best tool is that somewhere in the basis of the human experience, there have to be things that just don't change, you know, and it's, it's typically is qualitative stuff. Like we're trying to define things like music and beauty. We might, for example, completely disagree on what beauty is, but we're highly likely to agree that beauty exists. And, and you, that's the, the way you start is you wrap things in familiarity of some sort and agreement. And once you've bounded the problem in a consensus, now you've got something you can solve together. And, you know, so that's the, the deep way in. And if you turn that on human decision-making, you get to map out the engine and figure it out. But what people are really interested in is they want to slam the hood and test, take it for a test drive and see how to drive in traffic. But to make that explanation convincing, you can't, it, you have to have explained something about how the engine works. You can't just say, oh yeah, it runs on unicorns. Let's take it for a test drive because people will just <laughs> not go there. Right. So, so the challenge from my translation problem of the symphonic type architecture is I have to say, how do I keep you engaged in a light tour of how the engine works that's put into non-changing words so you can familiarize yourself with it <laughs> that's printed, you know, in such a way that we can get to the fun bits that are actionable and could, can go viral. And that's a problem I'm still working on uh, solving. But, you know, we'll get there one way or another. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing, Matt. I'm just so happy there's like, uh, to end on such an optimistic note and with such an admirable goal in mind of bringing people together and just, um, yeah, making the, the most of what we, what we have and enjoying life as much as possible. So uh, yeah. thanks so much for developing this framework and sharing it with us. That it's really great. Um, well, thanks for yeah, before, me. yeah. And I, I'd love for you to, um, to share any, um, uh, links or just tell me what, what to put, tell sure. people where, where to find you. And, um, yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at MJ Piercello, uh, which is my handle in a number of places. And I, my, uh, profile has a Substack linked where I'm beginning to try to put things into words. So it's, it's sporadic for now, but you'll find these kinds of musings and some structural bits. So Twitter and Substack are the best places to reach me for the moment. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, this by no means um, is, is the last of our conversations and I'm really happy it's that way. So thanks once again and uh, till next time. Sounds wonderful. It's been a pleasure. We'll do this again soon.